So for you history buffs out there, 249 years ago this week, uh, saw the birth of a French statesman and military leader who rose to prominence during the French Revolution, uh, a man who was uh, ultimately proclaimed emperor of the French in 1804. And of course, by now, I'm sure you all know I'm talking about Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, a man who dominated European and uh, global affairs for more than a decade while leading France to heights of economic and, and cultural greatness, uh, a man who's considered one of the greatest commanders of history uh, and whose campaign tactics are still taught in military schools around the world, uh, a man whose political and cultural legacy has endured as uh, one of the most celebrated and controversial in human history, but, you know, standing head and shoulders over all of his other towering achievements, and, and really his top priority was to reorganize the entire legal structure of his nation, which he accomplished uh, in what's been called the Napoleonic Code of Justice, uh, a system that well into the 19th century has remained uh, the basis of the judicial system of France and a number of other countries, uh, as well as, uh, believe it or not, the state of Louisiana right here in the, in the U.S. Uh, so justice was important. It was important in Napoleon's day, and it's important in our day. And in our look through the book of Psalms together, we're going to see that justice is a major theme there as well. In fact, the word justice occurs 18 times in just 150 Psalms. Uh, and it does so because justice describes in part who God is. Uh, and what I want us to do today is to examine his justice through Psalm 7 uh, as we hear King David cry out for it to the judge of all the earth. And so we're going to be looking at Psalm 7, beginning in verse 1. And the superscription to this psalm reads, A shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. And that big long word just means uh, it was an impassioned song within a regular rhythm. But verse 1, he writes, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all of my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, and let my enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord. In your anger, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He will bend and ready his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil. Is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. 
His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. But I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. You know, as we read through that together, it was pretty easy to see that David was facing a situation where he felt maligned, felt attacked. He felt accused of wrongdoing by this man named Cush, who's a member of the Israeli tribe of Benjamin. Now, the reason that's important is because it's the same tribe that King Saul was the head of. Uh, And Cush was probably a relative of Saul's, with maybe an axe to grind with David over his role in humiliating Saul and uh, and the honor of the Benjamites. And in this psalm, David calls out to God to come and judge the wicked. And in doing that, he's kind of drawing on this imagery of all the people of the earth being congregated before the throne of God as they wait on the judge to come and render his verdict. Uh, and he's not just imagining uh, the people of his own day, uh, but he's envisioning all people from all nations throughout all time summoned before this divine tribunal on the last day. Uh, that's why he said, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the people be gathered around you and over it return on high. And in saying this, David has, I think, four things in mind. Uh, Number one is that uh, evil must be exposed and finally punished one day. Number two, that righteousness must be revealed and one day finally rewarded. Number three, that mercy and justice must be somehow reconciled. And number four, that the anointed king must be vindicated in the place where he was maligned and rejected. Uh, Now, the first two principles don't really need a whole lot of explanation. They're pretty common themes uh, in Scripture and in the Psalms that we've been looking at. But it's the last two that are the ones I want us to zero in on today, beginning with the concept uh, of mercy and justice. And from our human perspective, those two things can be hard to reconcile, can't they? Uh, Even for the best of us. David certainly didn't trust humanity's capacity for it. That's why he prayed, O Lord, uh, in you I take refuge. Save me from my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul and rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Uh, You know, you can almost feel his desperation there, can't you? When he's saying that. Uh, It's the the same desperate feeling that uh, at one point led a a brave French mother to approach Napoleon, uh, and she came to him seeking a pardon for her son. Apparently the young man had been charged and convicted with desertion, which in most armies is a capital offense. The emperor replied to her that the young man had actually already committed that offense twice, uh, and that justice demanded his death. But this brave mother was undeterred, and she said, But your majesty, I don't ask for justice. I ask for mercy. Napoleon replied, But madam, your son does not deserve mercy. Sir, this brave woman said, It would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all that I ask for. So impressed with her clever and impassioned plea, the emperor said, I will have mercy. Uh, And he spared the woman's son. But I hope you see that uh, in both of those cases, the difficulty here with how both of those kings acted, because you see, David, uh, he wanted his enemies punished. 
and the, the French mother wanted the emperor to pardon her son. But neither case really addressed all the issues involved there. If you think about it, King David is calling for justice without mercy. And the mother just wanted forgiveness without any restitution. Right? So striking the right balance here between those two extremes can be really difficult. But thankfully not too difficult for our God. Because there is a place where he brought them all together. And that place is at the cross. At the cross of Calvary where God's perfect righteousness and his relentless love for us meet and are reconciled. The place where God's justice was perfectly administered and his mercy publicly displayed. When God took upon himself the punishment meant for the guilty. The punishment meant for us. Uh, and he did it for you and me. For no other reason than that he loved us. In spite of the horrible price it would cost him when our perfect, sinless, infinitely just God, according to his own design, established the means for guilty human beings to be reconciled to himself. Without one ounce of guilt ever being swept under the rug, one bit of justice unserved, or one drop of mercy wasted. Because of what Jesus endured for us. That's why 1 Peter chapter 2 says, But he, meaning Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile again, but he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Because you see, brothers and sisters, God is just, so he has to condemn sin. But God is love, so he became a man at the incarnation. Uh, and he did it as proof of that love of God and his determination and his desire and his intentionality in sending Jesus to buy us back from the penalty of sin. Uh, and not in just some kind of general way. Because our Lord didn't die to make people save a bull. He died to save you. Jesus didn't give his life to make your redemption a possibility. He died to bring it to reality. He didn't shed his blood for this anonymous blob of humanity to create some kind of bank of merit he came and paid the price the particular price for my sin uh, and if you are in christ he paid yours too so that when you and i stand in that final judgment that david is envisioning we can have the confidence uh, that we just studied about in sunday school in the words of first john that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming uh, and make no mistake about it he's coming He's coming to be vindicated. That's why David wrote, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. You know, if you look it up, the, the first definition in the Oxford Dictionary for the word indignation is, is anger or annoyance provoked by what's perceived as unfair treatment. That's the first definition. Just like the indignation that uh, Napoleon felt when he was lamenting his final exile in St. Helena, uh, and, and he wrote, For what infamous treatment are we reserved? To injustice and violence they now add insult and protracted torment. For my real glory will not be in the 40 battles I've won, 
because Waterloo's defeat will destroy their memory. Or, or how about like King David saying, Lord, my God, if I've done this, if I have done wrong, if there's wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Uh, you see, in both of those great sovereigns felt the sting of what they perceived as unfair treatment. But how much more must Jesus have felt that? How much more must Jesus have felt that? And I want you to think about this for a minute and realize that one day, he who was despised and rejected by humanity is one day coming to reign on this earth. Uh, a reign that will never be toppled by revolution or rebellion or intrigue or exile, but that will cause every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because, brothers and sisters, God will not allow the bloody cross to be the world's final memory of his son. And one day, maybe soon, Lord willing, to borrow a phrase from the great hymn writer Isaac Watts, Christ shall reign where'er the sun doth its successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. They don't write good theology in hymns like that anymore. And see, to that world that crucified him, uh, he's going to return as King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, you know, Jesus came the first time as a lamb, but he's coming back as a lion. Uh, he came once as a savior, but he's coming again as a judge. That rejected savior, once crucified and left for dead, is going to return to rule the nations. Uh, and that day is sooner than we think. And it's coming closer all the time. When, as we read this morning, the Lord is going to return on high over the assembly of the people. Uh, you know, Jesus promised as much in Matthew 25, 31. He said, when, not if, but when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And you know, as we think about those words, it helps to re remember the context he said them in because Jesus gave that promise to his disciples on the Wednesday night of Holy Week. Now, less than 48 hours from that time, he was hanging on a Roman cross. By that evening, his dead body was placed in a garden tomb. And nothing on that Friday seemed more preposterous than the notion of Christ coming again in glory to sit anywhere, much less on a throne. So what glory is there in worshiping a dead man? But Jesus knew all about Good Friday. And he knew about that long Saturday and that Easter Sunday. Uh, he knew with perfect foreknowledge all that the Father had ordained to befall him. All of it, from the, the traitor's kiss, to the trumped-up charges, to his six trials, uh, three by the Gentiles, three by the Jews, his mocking, his humiliation, scourging, the spitting, the crown of thorns, the pain, the degradation, and, and most especially the awful weight of the sin of the world. Uh, and all of that was seen by Jesus with perfect clarity. The same way that he knew that after his glorious resurrection that he would depart the world and he would be gone for a long, long time. You know, at first his disciples would struggle, but then they would come to learn to live without his visible presence. Uh, years would turn into decades. The apostles themselves would die, but the Christian movement would roll on. Generations would turn to centuries. Empires would rise and, and fall. Kings would come and go. 
Armies would go to war and the long march of history would continue, but his followers would also continue to spread across the globe, bringing the light of the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ into the 21st century and beyond. And we're part of that link, bringing that light and a love unlike anything the world has ever seen in its history. And you know, history is important. And, you know, for Napoleon, after his infamous Battle of Waterloo, he spent a long time contemplating his history uh, and his rise to power and his achievements in Europe and his imperial legacy. And, you know, it's funny, even for a mostly secular person, he came to that exact same realization about Jesus. Let me share with you something that he wrote. He wrote, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is not a mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. All the great leaders, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself, founded great empires. But upon what do these creations of our genius depend? They depend upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love. The love that took Jesus to the cross. Whereas the scriptures tell us steadfast love and faithfulness meet. And righteousness and peace kiss each other. And because of that combination achieved by Christ's death, then not only should we expect God to judge sin, but we can be confident in the end that no one, no one will be able to find fault with his verdict when judgment day comes. You know, a pastor that you've probably never heard of uh, from the 18th century, a Presbyterian pastor and uh, professor of systematic theology at uh, Columbia in the 1800s, wrote a sermon on this, and I want to share with you just a little tiny portion of it because the I think the language is really fitting and it's very beautiful. Uh, just share a very small portion. He wrote, uh, Envision a world in one vast congregation, a boundless sea of human beings arrayed before the judge. The nations are gathered, all nations, and he proceeds to separate them one from the other as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He sets the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. All other distinctions are swept away. Missing are the strut and fret of human authority. The tinseled insignia of rank and the golden baubles of nobility are run away. And men and women appear as they are, naked, unvarnished, unappendaged. The righteous and the wicked, the followers and the foe of Christ, these are the only two distinctions that have a place in that overwhelming presence. And each one is known. And each one must give account of himself to God, and we must all appear there. And he concludes by writing a few more laughs, a few more tears, a few more sighs, and we will all find ourselves in that great assembly, standing shoulder to shoulder in the collective mass of humanity before the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior and the Judge of all the earth. But for his redeemed, and that's us, We'll be standing there not in fear, but in complete confidence in the justice and the mercy of God on our behalf. So that we can, in the words of this Psalm 7, give to the Lord the thanks to his righteousness. And so we can sing to the name of the Lord, the Most High, forever. Amen? Let's pray together. God, our Father, source of life, and by what we do here today at your table in remembrance of your Son, is, Lord, we celebrate his perfect sacrifice on the cross and his glorious resurrection. We pray, Lord, that as we 
uh, eat and drink at Christ's command today that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts of bread and wine that the bread we break and the cup we drink may be for us the communion of the body and blood of your precious Son in whose name we pray. Amen.